KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, today's lesson for activists, how a small group of people can accomplish great things and change history. Eric Foner will explain. He's the author of the book, Gateway to Freedom, The Hidden History of the Underground Railroad. But first, Tuesday was a dark day for Democrats. For our political report, we turn, of course, to Harold Meyerson. He's editor-at-large of the American Prospect and a contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. Harold, after the Republican victory in Virginia on Tuesday, I think you could say, I told you so, especially about the Democrats running Terry McAuliffe. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, McAuliffe is a, a literal creature of the Clintonian past. Uh, that was his political network. And he uh, really didn't run on saying anything particularly new or inspiring or relevant to the particular economic and social conditions of 2021. I think the only thing for which McAuliffe will be remembered uh, out of this campaign is making the biggest campaign gaffe during a debate that anyone has made since uh, President Jerry Ford in 1976 managed to somehow say that he didn't think Poland was actually part of the Soviet bloc. Uh, <laughs> this, was, uh, this was perhaps even more damaging because what McAuliffe said was that parents really didn't have any business meddling in their kids' education or, or, or their schools or, or just you know, having really any input. And Youngkin, who had really kind of ignored that issue until that moment, um, jumped upon it, became the uh, champion of, uh, of parents everywhere. And that was one of the issues, but only one, that he rode to his victory. Youngkin's victory is not surprising. Not only was he running against a, a weak Democrat, as you say, in Virginia almost, almost always elects a governor from the party that's not in the White House, and it was very close. The pundits are giving Youngkin credit for his victory by presenting himself both as a Trump supporter and as a more moderate, less crazy kind of country club Republican. How did he do that? Well, I think he shared one particular and peculiar benefit with uh, another Republican elected in what was even more a Democratic state, that is Arnold Schwarzenegger. What the two have in common is they both avoided a Republican primary. In Schwarzenegger's case, he ran in a one-and-done general election recall. There was no Republican primary. And in Youngkin's case, the party decided not to hold a primary and to anoint its nominee in a convention, really, of the party elite. And, and by so doing, uh, they spared Youngkin the, the prospect of running against uh, a candidate who was more avidly pro-Trump than he and who denied, uh, as Trump requires, the vast majority of Republicans in intra-party contests to deny uh, that Joe Biden actually won the presidential election. If Youngkin had had to run in that primary, if he hadn't have said that, yeah, Trump really won, he would have lost the primary. If he had said that Trump really won, I doubt he would have uh, been plausible as the country club Republican who won back a, a, a lot of suburban and exurban voters. 
this Youngkin campaign, he, he proudly said it's no longer a campaign, it's a movement of parents. And a lot of the media are defining it as education. I think we should call it racism is what this is really about. The complaint is racist white parents don't want their kids learning about white racism in school. It's not even concealed very, very carefully. I mean, the, the, you want to tell about the ad that, uh, that Youngkin ran? Well, sure. Uh, Youngkin ran an ad with this uh, uh, aggrieved mom who complained that, uh, you know, the school had forced uh, an objectionable reading upon her son. So, you know, we're thinking, you know, is this something about sex uh, presented to second graders? What is it? <laughs> Actually, her son was a high school senior in AP English which has basically a college curriculum of readings. And one of the readings was the novel Beloved by Toni Morrison, which won a Pulitzer Prize by an author who's won a Nobel Prize. The, the wink and the nod here was that, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're teaching uh, in a grown-up way about the consequences of slavery, which is in many senses what that book is about. So it was uh, both a dog whistle and what seemed to be, you know, an indignant mom uh, who really had very little to be indignant about. And uh, the Republicans in Virginia uh, ran against uh, what what Fox News calls critical race theory. We have said many times they don't really know what critical race theory is. But again, it's a dog whistle about yeah. teaching not just that Martin Luther King was a saint, but that white people can be racists. Right. And, you know, it, it, this was the ultimate straw man because nowhere in Virginia public schools is anything resembling critical race theory either taught or on the curriculum uh, that the state has allowed. So uh, it's, it's like doubly or triply uh, a straw man, but it masks simply, uh, you know, a, a racist appeal that uh, we, we don't want to deal with white racism as, as, as part of our kids' curriculum. You say that the big upset on Tuesday was not Virginia, which we'd been worried about for weeks. It was it was New Jersey. We're recording this on Wednesday afternoon. At this hour, the race is still basically tied. They haven't declared a winner yet. But even if the Democratic candidate for governor wins, the closeness of the vote is very ominous for Democrats. The closeness of the vote, the fact that the southern part of New Jersey turned completely against the Democrats, where, which is a white working class part of New Jersey. The fact that there were local offices in, if I can cross the Hudson, in Long Island, in Brooklyn and whatnot that had been held by Democrats for a long time that went to Republicans. There is uh, a clearly, you know, an intensification of, among other things, white working class revolt against the Democrats. And if you add results like that to New Jersey, to Virginia. The fish that uh, stinks from the head is the uh, do-nothing Democratic Congress that Joe Biden has not been able to push into doing something in Washington, D.C. Of course, the, the pundits, the Tuesday night pundits, middle-of-the-night pundits, argued that the blame for the Democrats' losses should be assigned to the progressive wing of the party, which has refused to compromise and has created this, this stalemate in Washington. Uh, the Democrats are just too darn liberal, was the view. Uh, 
I don't think Terry McAuliffe was too liberal. Did did he run on abolish the police or? Uh, well, you know, virtually no Democrat in any visible uh, political office has run on defund the police. There are certainly, you know, issues that deal with, you know, fear of rising crime and rising crime, at least rising violent crime is real, uh, that the Republicans then magnify and distort into uh, something that is somehow a democratic cabal uh, that is behind this. And I think the Democrats clearly need to develop a, a plausible position. I mean, police reform has almost never worked, but they better figure out something in police reform that works short of abolishing the police since that went down in flames in uh, your near hometown. We will uh, get and, to that later in the then, hour. But, you know, I mean, what the midnight pundits were doing on CNN and elsewhere were saying, well, the problem isn't just the social liberalism of uh, those folks like the squad, not that we've actually heard anything from the squad in months, uh, but, you know, all of this, uh, this, this big uh, bill back better bill, which happens to be polling most of the particulars at about 80% report, uh, support and 70% Republican support. Wow. So it, it's hard for me to see how the remedy for uh, the do-nothing Congress, which is the result of folks like Manchin and Cinema and a few House members, is to do even less, particularly when it comes to giving the American people what they need and what they want. At prospect.org, in your morning after piece, you quote of the incoming Virginia Governor Youngkin's election night speech where he said, quote, we work in real people's time, not government time, close quote. And you think that's not just a campaign platitude, there's actually something to that. Well, government time, particularly if you are the party of government, which the Democrats are when Republicans are in power, they really don't want to actually govern, they just want to let the market run amok. Uh, but when you're the party of government, you have to deliver in a timely fashion, which is something I've been writing about, you know, for a number of months now. And I wrote about actually during the rollout of the uh, Obama stimulus in 2009, 2010, fearing that it was going so slowly that the Democrats would suffer a bad defeat in 2010, which they sure the heck did. I, I think the same kind of uh, analysis applies to what the Democrats are doing now. I mean, look, the only person who's actually been discussing the reconciliation bill through the media every day and every night is its leading critic, Joe Manchin, uh, who never mentions what's in it. He just mentions its cost, which he, for a variety of reasons, misstates. And, you know, the Democrats appear to be profoundly stuck. You, you have to have a sense of, of you know, four-dimensional space. Time really figures into uh, the public's perception of what you do. I mean, remember, Harry Truman in 1948 ran against what he called the Republican do-nothing Congress, and he won, you know, against all odds. I'm inclined to think that do-nothing Congresses don't poll very well, and the Democrats have to, you know, you know now do some stuff quickly uh, and uh, uh, how, however best they can. I mean, obviously, the fault is with a few uh, narcissistic moderates, but uh, be that as it may, that they've, they've really got to uh, enact this stuff now. We used to be told that all politics is local, and for the last few years we've been told that 
no politics is local, all politics is national, and that the Virginia and New Jersey results are an example of how American politics are all moving in unison now. But in fact, there are there was no clear pattern. If you look at a lot of the other elections on, on Tuesday, in local elections in Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Connecticut, the Republican candidates who ran against mask mandates and against what they called critical race theory lost. All of them lost. The same issues won in Texas and Colorado. And in New Jersey, the issue was not what it was in Virginia. There was no parents' movement against critical race theory in New Jersey. It was mostly about property taxes. But in Colorado, property taxes were, there was a referendum and the Republicans lost uh, that one. So it seems like in a lot of ways, uh, there's still a lot of differences among American states. There are, and there always will be. But I would argue that uh, in, the long, uh, in the long run, they are, they are lessening. And, you know, that's problematic. One reason why I think they're declining, by the way, is simply the decline of local news outlets, which yeah. is been eviscerated in recent years. And so if you watch cable news, you're watching, you know, uh, essentially a group, uh, you know, that has one national perspective, depending on which cable news station you're watching. And that's what you get. And and, and so I think there is, in some sense, uh, less awareness of what's going on locally than, uh, than there used to be among the American people. Well, now it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul. You mentioned the initiative in Minneapolis to replace the police department with a new Department of Public Safety, and it, it failed at the polls. This is an initiative that had been endorsed by Attorney General Keith Ellison and by Ilhan Omar. It was opposed by the governor, the mayor, and Senator Amy Klobuchar. Uh, in the last year, there's been a wave of violent uh, gun crime in Minneapolis, really ever since the protests over uh, that uh, cop murdering George uh, Floyd. And in that period, about a third of the police department either quit or claimed disability leave. Uh, and there's been what looks like sort of a, a police strike where they were saying something like, uh, you don't like the police? See how you like it without the police. And gun crime has skyrocketed there. And, and actually, that scared a lot of people, especially black people, yeah. uh, over half of whom opposed making this change to create a new Department of Public uh, Safety. You say Democrats need to find a way to do this. I think there is a better way to do this, and that is to focus on electing progressive district attorneys who will hold the police accountable and who will reform criminal justice prosecution. Uh, New York City just elected its first progressive district attorney, a black man named Alvin Bragg, also its first black district attorney. Each borough has its own DA, so he's the Manhattan. The Manhattan district attorney, but he's in the same mold as George Gascon in LA, Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, Chase Boudin in San Francisco. His campaign was promising to show leniency to defendants who commit low-level crimes and holding the police accountable for misconduct. And of course, we're mostly interested in the way uh, he will uh, continue to prosecute Donald Trump's family businesses. But uh, how do you like my plan to, to run progressive district attorneys as the way to deal with police misconduct? I think it's great. I think there'll be uh, a coming backlash against that. But since we're really talking about particular cities, which are more liberal 
than the rest of the country, uh, it, it, it does have a chance to, uh, to work. So let's hope you're right, because I think the space for whatever we refer to as police reform has unfortunately narrowed because of a number of factors, but the rise in violent crime in working class neighborhoods in particular, which in cities tend to be minority neighborhoods, is a real factor. And there's one other result of Tuesday's elections that was truly historic. Boston, for the first time in 199 years, chose a mayor who was not a white man. This was a progressive former city council member named Michelle Wu, who went to Harvard undergrad and Harvard Law School. Uh, Boston, like every other big city in America now, is more than half people of color, Black, Latino, and Asians. Boston has joined the rest of uh, America's cities. It has. And she is also a protege of Elizabeth Warren, which uh, I think says a lot about, uh, about where she's headed. You know, there was a time when uh, the election of the first Irish American in Boston <laughs> yes. was a huge deal. And I think this is the first election that was com- comparable to that. It marks a real passage of power and of, ser- uh, and of city self-definition and one we should welcome. Well, the lesson that Republicans are taking out of Tuesday's results is that campaigning on culture war is the way to deal with post-Trump America. And you think the Democrats have a way to fight culture war? Well, the way to fight culture war, uh, which the Democrats, if they get deeply embroiled in it, are going to lose, is to uh, counteract with what should be the Democratic strength, which is real economic policy that promotes social cohesion rather than the fragmentation uh, that comes from culture wars, and uh, finance it with, uh, with taxes on those who can afford it. Uh, so I think the only way the Democrats have a shot at prevailing uh, and not getting wiped out in next year's midterm elections is to enact uh, the best possible version they can of the so-called Bill Back Better bill. The Democrats' uh, calling card is either really benefiting most Americans in their pocketbook and in the social uh, benefits that come from that. Uh, If they don't have that, and if the terrain is simply fighting the culture war, disaster impends, not just for the Democrats, but for the nation. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Harold, thanks for talking with us today. Always good to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk about the hidden history of the Underground Railroad, the secret networks in antebellum America that helped slaves escape to freedom. For that, we turn to Eric Foner. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian of the Civil War and Reconstruction. He teaches at Columbia University, and his new book is Gateway to Freedom, The Hidden History of the Underground Railroad. He's also a friend of mine. We reach him this afternoon at home in Manhattan. Eric Foner, welcome back. Hi, John. Glad to be here. 
Good to have you. Now, when I was a kid, I, I thought that if slaves could escape from the antebellum South, if they could just set foot in a free state, they would be free. I think I learned this from reading Huckleberry Finn about Jim. But the truth was not so happy. The reason we had an underground uh, railroad, the reason it was underground was because we had these laws about fugitive slaves. In fact, we have a constitution that talks about fugitive slaves. Let's, let's start there. Um, uh, tell us about the evil Article 4, Section 2 of our constitution. Well, uh, yes, one of the big demands of Southerners at the Constitutional Convention was that they would have written into the document the right to get their fugitive slaves back if they escaped into another state. Now, at that time, the northern states had slavery, too, although not nearly as much as in the southern. But as the northern states gradually abolished slavery, uh, it they became a haven for some who were able to get out of the south. Uh, in 1793, the Congress passed the first fugitive slave law. This is four years after Washington's inauguration, um, trying to set up procedures so that fugitive slaves could be captured and taken back to the South. In other words, the point is, you were not free if you got into the northern states. Even after the northern states abolished slavery, under the Constitution, under the federal law, slave owners could seize you, you could be taken to a court and be sent back to the South. So uh, it was, as one judge in a, um, a case that I quote in my book says, you know, even though New York had abolished slavery, slavery still exists in New York as long as it's applied to a fugitive slave. Hmm. Well, your book, Gateway to Freedom, has some, some thrilling stories about how slaves escaped. Uh, one, of, uh, one of the most amazing is a guy named Henry Box Brown. Tell us about him. Henry Brown, yes. Well, he was a tobacco worker in Richmond in the late 1840s. His wife and child were sold away. Uh, to the Deep South, which was a very common experience for people in Virginia. And uh, Brown decided to escape. But what he did was he, um, he paid, he actually had a little money, he paid a white, uh, a white uh, man to nail him into a crate, basically a box, a crate, three, three feet long, not really that long for a grown man. And he was shipped in a shipping company, sort of like the UPS of that time, <laughs> oh, man. to the uh, anti-slavery office in Philadelphia. And this trip, uh, on his box was put on ships, on railroads, uh, and it took about 24 hours to get from Richmond to Philadelphia. It was very dangerous. He could have easily suffocated. Uh, but nonetheless, he got uh, the box got there, and uh, they uh, opened it up, and out popped Henry Box Brown, and he sang a hymn of deliverance. And uh, then, but of course, he wasn't safe in Philadelphia, and he was sent to New York, Boston, and eventually to England, where he became a prominent uh, anti-slavery lecturer. So um, that was a fairly ingenious way of getting out. But um, as you say, slaves chose all sorts of ways. One of the things that really struck me in doing this work was the ingenuity uh, and resourcefulness of people. You know, we think of fugitive slaves, and of course this is true for many, kind of running, you know, through the woods, uh, hiding out during the day, traveling at night on foot. Yes, many did that, but there were those who escaped on trains. There were those who escaped on boats. There were those who stole their owners' horse-drawn carriages and escaped. 
there were innumerable ways that slaves uh, figured out how to get out of the South and into uh, what free states, even though, as I said, they were not totally free even when they got there. Another one of the most fascinating characters in your book, Gateway to Freedom, is a, a black man named Louis Napoleon. Tell us about Louis Napoleon. Well, Louis Napoleon, uh, yeah, we don't know much about him. He was a um, illiterate black man, a laborer. He worked as a furniture polisher and some other jobs in New York City in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s. But his main job was uh, working on the Underground Railroad. He would scour the docks for, ship, for, for ships that were carrying hidden slaves. You know, as if you read Moby Dick, as you will recall, um, you know, being a sailor, working on a ship was one of the few occupations available to free black men at that time. And there were plenty of them who were willing to hide a fugitive slave on the ship. Anyway, Napoleon met these people. He uh, he worked with a couple of other, um, you know, figures in the Underground Railroad in New York City. Uh, they would help hide them for a night or two, but then they had to send them further north and eventually to Canada. But when Napoleon died... Uh, a newspaper said he had been responsible for the escape of about 3,000 people from mm -hmm. slavery over the last 30 years. Whether that number is absolutely accurate, I don't know, but it's certainly true that he was a little-known but very important figure in helping fugitive slaves passing through New York City. Of course, he has the same name as the Emperor of France, and this came up in one of the court proceedings, didn't it? Right. They, you know, it's interesting. Napoleon was illiterate, as I said. Nonetheless, he appears in court proceedings. He was able to go to court and get writs of habeas corpus for, for, for fugitives who had been seized to try to get them into court. Uh, one famous case, Lemon versus Virginia, where uh, it's a complicated thing, but where an owner brought slaves into New York. They weren't fugitives. They were brought by the owner voluntarily, and under the law, they became free. And uh, Napoleon brought this case to court, got a writ of habeas corpus, and it was appealed. And in one of the case, one of the appeals, the lawyer for the owner said, "You know, well, is this Louis Napoleon who brought this case the Emperor of France?" And the lawyer for the slave said, "No, no, he's a much better man." <laughs> Fantastic. We're speaking with Eric Foner about his hidden history of the Underground Railroad. It's called Gateway to Freedom. And then in 1850. Congress passed the Fugitive Slave Law. What did it say? Well, you know, in the 1840s, more and more slaves... Uh, the Underground Railroad really didn't exist until the 1840s. I mean, as a uh, somewhat organized... We shouldn't exaggerate it, you know, but it, it wasn't a whole series of, of, of stations and agents the way we sometimes think. But nonetheless, these local networks assisting fugitive slaves... Uh, proliferated in the 1840s, and Southerners became more and more alarmed at this, and they demanded federal action, and you got this law of 1850, which is part of the Compromise of 1850, and it was very draconian. It made this now a federal responsibility. The federal, federal commissioners would send fugitives back, federal agents would seize them. If need be, federal marshals or even the army would bring a slave back to the South if there was a danger of them being rescued. Um, it, you know, we sometimes think, as you know, that the South before the Civil War believed in states' rights. Uh, this is not the case. The South believed in slavery. When states' rights was the defense of slavery, they believed in that. But here in the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850 was the most extreme intervention of the federal government into local affairs 
of the whole pre-Civil War period, overriding local laws, local justices, de- demanding that ordinary citizens assist in the rendition of fugitive slaves, or they would be guilty of a federal crime. Uh, and this, of course, aroused a lot of opposition and criticism in the North as a violation of local rights, even apart from the question of slavery and uh, the fugitive slaves. But um, this made it very difficult for fugitives to remain in the North. This is when you really get the mass exodus to Canada, because, first of all, it was retroactive. A fugitive could have escaped in 1830 and been living a completely law-abiding life in the North, as there were quite a few of them, and they had children and families. They could be grabbed up under this law, And so you had this kind of exodus of people, black people from northern states into Canada, not just fugitive slaves at that time, but people who'd lived there for a long time because of the possibility of being grabbed under this new, uh, very extreme fugitive slave law. So the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 made it a federal crime for people in free states to refuse to, to help capture and return to slavery, uh, uh, former slaves who'd escaped, uh, we're getting calls from angry listeners who want to know how could representatives from free states have voted in favor of the Fugitive Slave Act? What, what were they thinking? Well, first of all, as I said, this was part of the Compromise of 1850. Congress in 1850 tried to settle all the different issues relating to slavery. Part of it was you might say pro-Northern. They admitted California. That's where you live. That's a very big thing, yes. Yeah, as a free state, right? So that actually tipped the balance uh, uh, slightly in favor of the free states. Uh, There were other provisions we don't need to go into, but uh, the Fugitive Slave Law was certainly the most pro-Southern part of the compromise. And, in fact, many Northern representatives did not vote in favor of it. I quote some commentators saying they skulked in the hallways while the vote was taken. In other words, they, they, did, they, they didn't want to vote for it, but they didn't really want to vote against it either. So they just didn't vote at all. So it was mostly passed with Southern votes. Uh, Eric Foner, in your book, Gateway uh, to Freedom, you try to figure out how big, how many uh, slaves actually found their way to freedom uh, through the Underground Railroad. Now, the abolitionists and slave owners disagreed on most things, but they agreed on one thing, that the Underground Railroad really was a significant uh, threat to the existence of the slave system in the South. Uh, since both abolitionists and slave owners agreed about this, should, uh, should we conclude that they were right? You know, I think both sides, as it were, uh, tended to exaggerate the Underground Railroad for their own reasons. Abolitionists wanted to show how effective they were, how discontented the slaves were, how there was this desire for freedom, which of course there was, and so thousands and thousands were escaping. And Southerners increasingly began to use this as a weapon against the North, especially secessionists. They would say, look, we cannot stay in a union where abolitionists are assisting tens of thousands of slaves to escape. Uh, You know, nobody knows how many slaves escaped, and uh, I would not give you a hard and fast figure. My book focuses on what I call the Eastern or the Metropolitan Corridor going up through New York City, through Philadelphia, New York City, upstate New York. There was a whole other series of routes in the West, in Ohio, etc., that Kentucky that I don't talk about. But, you know, my estimate is that about 100 slaves a year, fugitive slaves, pass through New York City 
in the years from 1830 to 1860. So that's 3,000. So, so, now, that's New York City. There were other routes. Maybe there were 1,000 a year altogether who escaped. Well, there were 4 million slaves in 1860. 1,000 a year escaping is annoying considerably to those who owned them. That's a significant loss, but it is not threatening the stability of the slave system. So so we have 4 million slaves in the United States in 1860. We have maybe 1,000 a year escaping to freedom via the Underground Railroad. Um, isn't that fact uh, discouraging and, and depressing? And, and don't we have to judge the Underground Railroad a, a dismal failure? <laughs> well, you know, it was very hard to escape from the South. Uh, uh, the South was an armed camp. There were slave patrols everywhere. According to the law, any white person could apprehend, or any black person who was on the road or traveling without a pass or free papers. Most of these slaves escaped from the Upper South. They escaped from the states that bordered on free territory, as you might expect. Uh, Maryland, Kentucky, Delaware. Some came from, you know, maybe Virginia, as far south as that. Uh, you're not going to get out very easily from Georgia or Alabama or Mississippi. It's too far, too far. That's 800 miles or so to get to the north. In fact, if you were in those states and a slave, you would escape probably to southern cities. You would try to get to New Orleans or to Mobile, where you could kind of try to blend in with the free black population. So we should not think that the action of these fugitive slaves, which was tremendously courageous, I'm not taking anything away from that at all, was destroying the system of slavery, but it did tremendously exacerbate sectional tensions. If you read the declaration of the causes of secession of South Carolina when they seceded, now, not that many slaves actually got out of South Carolina, but the longest paragraph in that declaration, which is all the complaints against the North, was about efforts to help fugitive slaves. So, in other words, this both the efforts of the slaves themselves and the actions of abolitionists in the Underground Railroad uh, really helped to bring on the Civil War. So I would not, you know, and eventually the end of slavery. So I wouldn't say it was uh, totally a failure in that sense. So the, the, the South Carolina Declaration of Secession that, that spent so much time and space arguing that uh, northern resistance to returning escaped slaves was a reason for the South to secede, uh, since there were so few slaves who actually made it uh, out of slavery, you think that South Carolina secessionists were, were simply uh, deluded and it was a big mistake for them to secede? Uh, no, I think South Carolina knew what they were talking about. You know, um, because remember, as you said before, this is in the Constitution. If northern states, northern population, in fact, they weren't talking about the state. They were talking about the people of the north being willing to assist fugitive slaves. And they basically felt, well, look, this is in the Constitution, and yet they're violating that portion of the Constitution. How can we, how can we feel confident that other parts of the Constitution protecting slavery are going to be you know, uh, abided by in the future? Um, in other words, federal law, federal constitutional provision was being violated in many parts of the North. The further north you got, the more open it was. Up in Syracuse, I talk about this in the book, you know, it was totally open. The, the guy who ran the Underground Railroad in Syracuse, Jermaine uh, Logan, himself a fugitive slave, advertised in the newspapers. He said, look, I'm the head of the Underground Railroad here. Anyone sees a fugitive slave, I want you to send him to my house. 
if any slave owner comes in this town looking for a slave, we're going to get up a mob and drive him out of town. Nobody did anything. The sheriff didn't say anything. The mayor didn't say anything. This was just public knowledge in Syracuse. And that's the kind of thing which alarmed Southerners, northern public sentiment. Not everywhere, obviously, but in sufficient places that they were worried about uh, what the future might hold for northern attitudes toward the South. If you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Eric Foner about the hidden history of the Underground Railroad. His new book is called Gateway to Freedom. Uh, your book focuses, uh, as you've said, on New York City, which was the biggest city in the nation at the time of the Civil War. I was, I was surprised to learn that even though it was deep in the North, New York was not an anti-slavery city. It didn't vote for Lincoln. And you say that in 1860, the mayor of New York City proposed that the city secede from the Union. What was wrong with New York City in 1860? Yes, uh, Mayor Fernando Wood did propose that, not to join the South, but that New York should become a free city, uh, neither North nor South, so that it continue it could continue to trade with the South. By the way, some of us feel right now that we ought to secede and have our own country here. But um, the problem was that New York was totally tied in to the Southern economy. New York had had slavery. It abolished it very slowly. Slavery didn't end in New York City till 1827. But even after that, the New York uh, economy was totally tied into the South. New York merchants controlled the cotton trade. They were the ones who picked up the cotton in the South and shipped it to England for the cotton mills there, or maybe to New England. New York bankers financed the acquisition of land by slave owners. New York insurance companies um, it put policies on slaves where if a slave died, the owner would get money for that. Um, New York was an outpost of the South it, economically. Um, thousands, thousands of slave owners visited New York every year, often bringing their own slaves with them. There were slaves on the street of New York into the 1840s after slavery had been abolished, actually, uh, in the state. So, you know, many people in New York were economically tied into the South. There's, there's just no question about it. And you know who wrote the major book on this long ago, my uncle Philip S. Foner, Business and Slavery. This was published before I was born in 1941, in which he traced out the connections between New York's merchant community and the slave South. So you were not going to get a sympathetic uh, reception in New York City if you were a fugitive slave. Uh, there was a small, very small abolitionist contingent. They worked very heroically, I would have to say, to assist fugitives, but they were a very beleaguered small group in, in this city. And how, how many New Yorkers were part of uh, what we call the Underground Railroad in, in New York, in New York City in the 1850s? Uh, you know, I would say at any one time there were maybe a dozen people or fewer mm. working, making that their major anti-slavery effort. There were plenty of people in New York, particularly free black people. New York had a significant free black population who assisted a fugitive slave. As I said, dock workers, hotel workers, people who came into contact with slaves would send them over to what are the anti-slavery office where the fugitives, where the Underground Railroad was kind of centered. But they were not Underground Railroad agents. They just knew how to help someone. The people who were devoting themselves pretty much full-time to this, like Louis Napoleon, who I mentioned, very, very few people. Considering how few, I would say it's amazing 
what they managed to accomplish. How a small number of people can accomplish great things in change history. That's what I conclude from uh, from I agree. Absolutely. You know, you that that is a inspiring thing actually that uh, that that a small number can actually help a you know, a significant number of people achieve freedom. They're not destroying the slave system, but they are helping very courageous people who the the initiative of course came from the fugitives themselves. Nobody told them to escape. You know, you, despite Southern mythology, you didn't have Northerners coming down and going on to plantations and telling slaves they ought to escape. They did that on their own, and in my book I talk about their motives and their, the ways they did it. Once they managed to cross the Mason-Dixon line, they did make contact with people who were willing to help them. We've only got about three or four minutes left here, and we need to talk about your man, Lincoln. The, the mm-hmm. abolitionist Wendell Phillips called Lincoln the slave hound of Illinois. What, what was he talking about? Uh, well, Lincoln, uh, first of all, Lincoln always felt the fugitive slave issue was not the main issue for Northerners. It was the expansion of slavery. Lincoln was a lawyer. He was a constitutionalist. He said, look, this is in the Constitution. I may not like it. In a famous letter in 1855 to a friend of his in Kentucky, he said, you know, I hate to see these fugitive slaves hunted down, but I bite my lip and keep silent. Mm. Why did he keep silent? Because this is part of the law. He said, we cannot start violating uh, the Constitution and federal law. And then when he came into office at the beginning of the Civil War, the fugitive slave law was still on the books, and Lincoln said, well, we, we have to enforce that. And you know, at the very beginning of the war, as you know, the army actually was returning fugitive slaves to their owners who had run away to the army. But that policy quickly collapsed. First of all, soldiers didn't want to do it. And second of all, commanders said, well, why should I send these guys back when they're actually working to help the Confederacy? So very quickly, a few months into the war, the Lincoln administration stopped <laughs> enforcing the Fugitive Slave Act. Uh, one last thing. Your your book, Gateway to Freedom, uh, is based in part on an amazing document uh, that you found, Sidney Howard Gay's a record of uh, of escaped of fugitive. slave fugitives. Uh, how did you? What, what is this document, and how did you find it in about two minutes? Yeah, well, the document is in the Rare Books Library of Columbia University, sitting here. Sidney Howard Gay was an abolitionist editor. His papers are here at Columbia. Uh, several years ago, a student, an undergraduate, a senior at Columbia, who was also employed walking our dog, the famous Conquer Spaniel Sammy, who you've met, mm-hmm. um, she was writing her senior thesis about Gay's journalistic career, and she one day she said to me, you know, uh, in Box 72, there's this thing called Record of Fugitives. I'm, I don't really know what it is, but you might find it interesting. So I filed that in the back of my mind, and um, one day I went up there and said, let me see Box 72, and there it was. It was unknown. It was not indexed. It was not cataloged. And yet, for two years, 1855-56, Gay kept a record of over 200 fugitive slaves who passed through New York City. He interviewed them. He was a journalist. He wrote down their experiences, where they came from, why they escaped, how they escaped, who helped them along the way. It's an amazing contemporary record. Much of what we know about fugitive slaves comes from people's reminiscences later on. But here you have the record right from the time of 200. So I... You know, that became the focal point or the basis for for this book. I then moved outward in that book. He also talks about the Underground Railroad and the people who were helping these fugitives. 
I should just add to conclude, tomorrow, I think, or the next day, the Rare Books Library is putting this document online. It will be, if you Google probably gay record of fugitives, it's, if any teachers are listening, it's an amazing document to get students interested in slavery and fugitive slaves and the Underground Railroad. A transcript of it, which I uh, typed up, will be online in the next day or two uh, via the Columbia University Libraries. So you say this this uh, incredible document was found by a Columbia undergraduate writing her senior thesis for you. How come no other histo- How come no his professional historian had found this? One or two people had cited it here or there. I had never heard of it, but it, because Gay's papers are voluminous, there's a hundred boxes, and most people are interested in his journalistic career. He was actually the managing editor of the New York Tribune in the Civil War, which was a very important position. But this just sat there. Uh, why no one noticed it? I don't know. But it, there was no way you would know it was there if you went to the card catalog. Not mentioned. If you went to the online catalog not mentioned. There was no, you had to know it was there to find it. That was the problem. So we salute the undergraduate who found it, and we salute Eric Foner. His new book is The Hidden History of the Underground Railroad, Gateway to Freedom. It shows how a small number of people can accomplish great things and change history. Thank you, Eric. Great to talk to you, John. We spoke with Eric Foner about his book, Gateway to Freedom, in January 2015. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's Programming Traffic Director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA.